Good afternoon, Radio Free Brooklyn. It's 1 p.m. and it's time for Objection to the Rule. I'm Ori Givens. Coming up, white supremacist groups convened in Charlottesville, Virginia this weekend, and the result was violence that left three people dead and several other injured. We'll talk about the government response, including the controversy over the president's words, coming up. Plus, North Korea is at the top of the news cycle with rhetoric reaching peak levels. We'll talk about what it all means, and we're joined by author and fellow RFB host Jared Berenstein to talk about his latest book, poking fun at a major face in the Trump administration. Join us live for Object to the Rule right now on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to Objection to the Rule, everyone, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. How are you doing? I'm good. So today's show, we have Violet Perrin. Thanks for joining us again. Yes. I also want to announce that Violet will be taking on new role with our show. She'll be our senior producer working with helping us get books and bookings on the show and and bring you all the latest news. So we're very glad that she's going to be taking on this new role. Glad to be here. Congratulations. Thank you. And then we also have fellow RFB host Jared Berenstain. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. It's fun to be uh, fun to be fun to be a guest in the studio. I know. It was to a host. It's always weird when you flip flop and you're on the other mm-hmm. side. And you don't uh-huh. have to like run the the controls. It's very in here. comfortable. It, <laughs> I like it. It is. It is. I, I I frequently like to sit on that side. I feel like you just get to kind of be yourself. Yeah. And be, be open. You get to relax a little bit. Absolutely. So. The big news this week is the unrest that has been going on. And I don't even necessarily know if I want to call it unrest because I feel like there were a group of people that went to go start some things Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Charlottesville and then people responded. And what resulted was the unrest, the very, you know, what some are calling a riot, a very, you know, violent situation that really didn't have to be. You know, one of the things that I um, heard when we're going to get into kind of what happened in just a moment, but it was really interesting that there were all of these clergy um, men and women um, from the area that were singing at the event and they were singing I'm gonna let it shine mm-hmm. um, you know, this was at the beginning kind of even before all of the violence um, started kicking off and I you know I think it's interesting one because we also have to recognize that the clergy you know in general has had a very interesting relationship with the civil rights movement um, you know some leaders were very much a part of the clergy and were at the front of that movement. But there are also big factions of clergy, especially white clergy, that were very against the civil rights movement. So it, it's kind of interesting that, you know, the, the face of kind of unification is the church. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Let's talk about what happened over the weekend. And the on Friday night, it started on Friday night. This has been an event that has been planned for several months. And on Friday night, hundreds of 
white supremacist allied groups, whether they're the alt-right, whether they are, you know, white nationalists, whatever name you want to call them, convened in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they say it was simply to protest some changes um, to a park and the removal of a Confederate statue. But the the story is much bigger than that. And you saw the images over the weekend of all of these, you know, white men, but white people um, that were holding torches, tiki torches and marching through the streets, <laughs> you know, and the, you know, the irony of tiki torches being of Polynesian origin did not was not lost on many people. Mm-hmm. Um, then the next day on Saturday, there were clashes in the street between these white supremacists and the several groups that showed up to what is being called counter-protest, to stand up for equal rights, to stand up for anti-fascist ideas. Um, any group, you know, groups from Black Lives Matter to various other organizations in the you know, anti-fascist movement. There were obviously conflicts. There were obviously going to be clashes when, you, when these two groups meet. The result was that one person was killed amidst all of this violence, Um, When a person ran their car into a group of people who were counter protesting these white nationalists, two police officers were killed in a helicopter crash that was surveying the scene of all of this happening in Charlottesville. So there was a loss of life that occurred. Um, But it's interesting to see that even though, you know, this was a rally that was kind of planned to whatever whatever they're saying to to protest but what it seems to be is to show this force of white nationalism to be visible you know they weren't wearing hoods we're used to seeing very racist people wearing hoods and this was the first time that you see people marching in the streets it was akin to the 60s where they didn't they didn't cover themselves they their faces were very much center and you know these groups met resistance not only from outside people from the community but the community stood up and resisted these groups. So it spoke to, you know, I don't want to paint it as a black or white, excuse the pun, you know, clash or this idea of one group versus another, but it is this idea of this conflict that's been simmering in this country um, coming to a very visible head. Um, I'm curious to know what your thoughts originally when you first heard of this story, like what what were your initial thoughts? And we'll start with you, Jared. Um, Well, you know, obviously it's so shitty that there are still people in this country who feel this way and also that they are so emboldened now like um it's all it's there you know there are so many things that are wrong with what's going on in the government these days but i think one of the uh benefits of it one of the i mean i say this like it's such a small benefit by comparison um is that it is it's making people feel who who have all these really shitty fringe beliefs that they're safe mm-hmm. and they can do whatever they want mm-hmm. and so it it's almost as though you know ugh, you know i'm not a doctor i feel like there's some diseases that when they present more it's easier to fight them uh-huh. like that's how i feel about this where it's like these people become emboldened they say oh we don't have to hide in the shadows anymore and then everybody around them goes oh no you, you, I mean, you should have because mm-hmm. what you think is awful and, um, you know, what you're doing is wrong. And now we know who you are. So now we can like take action against it as opposed to the kind of like, uh, secret, you know, below board racism that was happening beforehand. But the other thing is like, you know, in a, in a perfect, you know, first amendment argument, you know, these white supremacists, neo-Nazis, KKK people are going to have their march 
and then everybody is free to also go down and do their counter march, you yeah. know? And so then the world gets to see, okay, look, there's like five people who are like these pro neo Nazis. There's like a hundred people around them who are against them. You know, that's probably a good indicator of like how shitty their beliefs are. But and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna show my bias here by saying by 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 suggesting that the blame for the violence came from the uh, the neo Nazis. Uh, but that's where the spark happens. You know, mm-hmm. like you, you know, I, I see so much rhetoric on uh, on the right about like the violent left and stuff like that. But really, you know, if you if you take every protest that's happened on the liberal side and you put it in a bubble, like there are no. There is no violence. There is no, um, you know, there are giant eruptions. Uh, it's o- it almost seems like this is always instigated by mm-hmm. somebody who's trying to, um, I don't know, who's trying to try uh, try try to incite something and try yeah. to color what the left is doing as being violent and being negative. And there's been a lot of talk about the false equivalencies that have been presented in the media regarding yes. this issue. You know, even by the president, which we'll talk about in a moment. And how you're, you know, the idea is that somehow people that are fighting for white supremacy are equal to people that are fighting for anti-racism or anti-fascism beliefs and putting them on the same pedestal. Mm. And what does that mean? You know, you see comments on Facebook where people are like, well, I see BLM and these white supremacists in the same vein. One's fighting for white rights, one's fighting for black rights. But that's not the no, issue. It's a false equivalency. It's a false equivalency. Um, what did you think, Violet? Uh it makes me wonder. Yes, like they're out. They're out now. They're like visible. Uh, they're not hiding behind internet forums or behind white hoods. Um, so, are we seeing now everything that was going on under the surface, or are they bold in, emboldened enough to do more and be more than they were before? Is this just sort of a look behind the curtain, or is this uh, is this a, a more powerful and more active group now? You mean, do you think that because they're out, they are now more powerful than they were before? I'm not sure. That's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if they're more powerful and if they're uh, if they're interested in being more disruptive. Well, you know, I'm not an expert on the, but from from what I can see in the media, it seems as though. You know, um, I, th- I think about uh, Les Mis and, uh, you know, the group of schoolboys that were trying to mm-hmm. amass their power and trying to figure out like when the right time to strike was. Yeah. And then realizing that they didn't have the power and that they shouldn't have and then getting just dis- getting destroyed. It, yeah. it feels like this uh, this election has made them feel more powerful than they are. And so they all start standing up and saying like, oh, hey, we're here. But what is happening and what I think is going to continue happening is that they realize how outnumbered they are and how much you know any any support that they thought they had is you know basically just you know internet rhetoric or you know uh paid paid russian hackers who are you know creating accounts to make it seem like they have more support than they do so you know maybe i'm being overly optimistic and seeing the world in rose-colored glasses but it really does seem to me as though this is you know, more going to be illuminative so that we can get rid of them as opposed to, uh, you know, them realizing how powerful they are and then keeping continuing to accumulate power. Right. Let's hope that's true. I hope so. I feel like they're, you know, after leading up to the election and, and, you know, even kind of in the very early stages of the primary season, you saw or not even the primary season, but before under the election of, of former President Obama, you saw these ideologies coming more to the surface. And and they were coming more visible in politics. 
it would be erroneous to say that they never existed because, you know, we know the history of America. Mm -hmm. But I think that it did embolden. I agree that it does. It did kind of put a stamp and say, hey, if you have these beliefs, there are going to be other people that have these beliefs. So, yeah, you may get some pushback, but they're going to be people that are going to stand in solidarity with you. And the scariness of this rally or march or whatever you want to call it is the fact that it did show that there are these people that are willing to put their faces out there and espouse these views. Um, the response by President Trump has a lot of people, you know, really critiquing and, and calling out his hypocrisy. So I want to play his remarks at a press conference yesterday, which is actually about veteran affairs that... Um, that was actually about veteran affairs that he made comments about these events. So we'll play that and then we'll talk about it. But we're closely following the terrible events unfolding in Charlottesville, Virginia. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. It's been going on for a long time in our country. Not Donald Trump, not Barack Obama. This has been going on for a long, long time. It is no place in America. What is vital now is a swift restoration of law and order and the protection of innocent lives. No citizen should ever fear for their safety and security in our society. And no child should ever be afraid to go outside and play or be with their parents and have a good time. I just got off the phone with the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, and we agreed that the hate and the division must stop and must stop right now. We have to come together as Americans with love for our nation and true effect, uh, really, and I, I say this so strongly, true affection for each other. Our country is doing very well in so many ways. We have record, just absolute record employment. We have unemployment, the lowest it's been in almost 17 years. We have companies pouring into our country, Foxconn and car companies and so many others. They're coming back to our country. We're renegotiating trade deals to make them great for our country and great for the American worker. We have so many incredible things happening in our country. So when I watch Charlottesville, to me it's very, very sad. I want to salute the great work of the state and local police in Virginia. Incredible people. Law enforcement. Incredible people. And also the National Guard, they've really been working smart and working hard. They've been doing a terrific job. Federal authorities are also providing tremendous support to the governor. He thanked me for that. And we are here to provide whatever other assistance is needed. We are ready, willing, and able. Above all else, we must remember this truth. No matter our color, creed, religion or political party, we are all Americans first. We love our country. We love our God. We love our flag. We're proud of our country. 
We're proud of who we are. So we want to get the situation straightened out in Charlottesville, and we want to study it. And we want to see what we're doing wrong as a country where things like this can happen. My administration is restoring the sacred bonds of loyalty between this nation and its citizens. But our citizens must also restore the bonds of trust and loyalty between one another. We must love each other, respect each other, and cherish our history and our future together. So important. We have to respect each other. Ideally, we have to love each other. So that messaging is quite distinct than some of the other messaging that we've heard over the history of Trump. And we want to compare that and, and with the message that Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe gave. Um, obviously, there's the partisan difference. He's a Trump is a Republican. McAuliffe is a Democrat. But beyond that, the language was completely different. So we'll play that here. And I have a message to all the white supremacists and the Nazis who came into Charlottesville today. Our message is plain and simple. Go home. You are not wanted in this great commonwealth. Shame on you. You pretend that you're patriots, but you are anything but a patriot. You want to talk about patriots, talk about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, who brought our country together. You think about the patriots today, the young men and women who are wearing the cloth of our country. Somewhere around the globe, they're putting their life in danger. They're patriots. You are not. You came here today to hurt people. And you did hurt people. But my message is clear. We are stronger than you. You have made our commonwealth stronger. You will not succeed. There is no place for you here. There is no place for you in America. We work here today to bring people together, to unify folks. I remind you all that we are a nation of immigrants. Unless you're Native American, the first ships that came to Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. And since that time, many people have come to our great country to unite us. Our diversity. That mosaic tile of immigrants is what makes us so special. And we will not let anybody come here and destroy it. So please go home and never come back. Take your hatred and take your bigotry. There is no place. And if I could give you a piece of advice, use your time and energy to help people. Come with me to a homeless shelter. Come with me to help a veteran find a job or a place to live. That's what we need help on, to bring people together. So two distinct messages, uh, one from the president <laughs> and one from the governor of Virginia. What, oh boy. Let's start with the president's message. What do you think, did, was there anything that you think he did right? Or was there anything you think he should have done? <sighs> I mean... You know, like we're grading on a curve. Like, you know, if you, if you put a dog in like at the wheel of a car, like I'm sure there's some things he's doing right, you mm -hmm. know, but like it's just the more of the same, like, you know, sucking his own dick and being a giant hypocrite. And also like the this is something that I see on uh, on the conservative side so much where they want to be patted on the back for thinking that bad things are bad. 
And I don't want to plug my book too hard here, but like this is something that Kellyanne does Mm -hmm. all the time. And I devote like a little section of the book to talking about it. But like in order to make it seem like the things they're saying aren't insane, they will often assert their uh, their really good opinions. Like at one point in that speech, uh, Trump, he's just like he's like Trump was like, oh, I think it's so sad. I really think it's sad. And I'm like, oh, oh, do you? You hero. Like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for thinking that it's sad. God, you know, I was over, oh God, it's, you know, there was like a hundred thousand examples of him being a piece of shit in that speech. And I just, I could, I could spend an hour going through it. Like it's, it's awful. What do you think, Violet? Yeah, it's like, to, to like, to actually evaluate it brings the bar so low. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I mean, every, every ounce of it was, Full of you know, it was disingenuous. Everything mm-hmm. about it, it was mm-hmm. like you know, it was a man who clearly, it it was very hard to see any evidence of him caring or having genuine feelings about the situation. You yeah. know, he he knows that he's a leader. I don't know who wrote the speech, but he has to perform it, and he has to perform concern. Uh, I feel like you had to have had at least a little input because it was very, very specific Trump. about who he's not calling out. Uh-huh. And also the little section about how great the country is doing now was just like full of him sucking his own dick moments. Like, let's yeah. talk about how great it is that I've brought down unemployment, right. you know, and, you know, I'm, he's brought up employment and he's brought down unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> I know he mentioned that as though they were two separate things. There's, oh Jesus! So there's this idea, you know, the the idea that one he didn't, you know, he didn't specifically mention, you know, the groups that were involved in causing this chaos. He didn't call them out by name, and then the idea that the blame is on both sides, right, yeah. or on all sides, on many sides. Um, how can people be blamed for fighting against racism? Like I, I don't understand that idea. And again, talking to that idea of a false equivalence, you can't put those two in the same category of people. And it, it's really interesting that he was so kind of reserved when he's never reserved. You know, you look at his Twitter feed, he will call out anybody and everybody for anything. But he mm-hmm. could not call about white supremacists bringing havoc to Charlottesville, Virginia. He couldn't say that. Well, that's just also, you know, uh, another very blatant example of his own hypocrisy where he's calling out people for for. He's like, we need to respect each other. And I'm yeah. like, really? You, you? You were the one that said punch people. Like, mm-hmm. you said so many things that are disrespectful. It's like, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I just. You one know. is people, you know, mentioned the, the, just throughout the whole campaign, it was, you know, attacking one person after another for, you know, really ridiculous issues, mm-hmm. whether it's disability or ethnic origin. These are the type of things that come out of these thought buckets well, these this are is, exactly this, this is exactly the same mentality this is the thing that drives me insane about uh conservatives in general is that they're using this idea of and i want to say that this is something that this this came out of liberalism this came mm. out of liberalism the idea that you know uh we want to have an open dialogue we want to be able to respect both sides of an argument and so they have taken the idea that there are two, two sides or many ish, sides to every issue and they've and they've extended it past its logical logical boundaries where yeah. they're saying like, well, you know, yes, that guy, that person, you know, killed five people. But like, let's hear his version of events, you know, like, let's right. let's hear his philosophy that makes it seem like, you know, that's not an awful thing to do. There are certain moral bedrocks that we can that we can all agree 
you know, they don't, we don't need to have an argument for. We don't need to have yeah. a Jeffrey Lord on CNN discussing the benefits of something that we know was a bad idea. Well, and not to mention that that benefit of the doubt really only gets extended to certain people and in certain situations. One hundred percent. There, there's no benefit of the doubt. You know, you look at the the conversations about other civil actions that have had that have happened, and they, there was no, you know trying to find out what their perspectives are trying to bring them all together. You know, there was, there was none of that rhetoric. So it, it, it is interesting. We could talk about that literally all day. I did want to ask about the governor's message because for me, the governor's message, yes, was more forceful, but then also, you know, this idea of touting Thomas Jefferson and George Washington as these bastions of freedom these men owned slaves. These men perpetuated slavery. These men under their watch saw hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of Africans die. So, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Native Americans, indigenous populations die. So why and are should we have still- Andrew Jackson also. Yeah, well, and, <laughs> yeah, they should have just to get, just to get it all in. What are, when are we going to stop looking to these historical figures as lampposts in the fight towards liberty? I mean, you know, there's one argument there for, um, you know, that calling out their own hypocrisy of Thomas Jefferson, of any of the founding fathers that owned slaves. Um, and I think there's a danger there in, you know, this this trend of liberal gatekeeping where you're not allowed to fight for the left if you don't have a 100 percent perfect track record. And I And I kind of feel like that does a little bit more damage than it does good. But I also feel like, you know, we should be calling out these issues and, you know, not necessarily forgiving them, but acknowledging them and also be able to differentiate between the good that a person did and a bad that a person did, you know? So like when we're invoking people like Thomas Jefferson, when we're invoking uh, founding fathers that, you know, turned a blind eye to slavery or had slaves themselves, you know, we want to specifically mention the, values that they put into this government that we hold dear like separation of church and state and equality and and uh and uh you know rejection of um totalitarianism mm-hmm. i feel like i use that word right i could be wrong <laughs> um you know at the same time acknowledging that they were flawed individuals and that they they did very very wrong things in their life i don't think that we uh that we get any mileage as Democrats by shoving anybody out the door who has any kind of blemish on the record. No, I mean, I I think I understand that, but it also seems to be kind of hard to accept somebody's notion of equality when it didn't include people like me. Of course. Right, you know? right. So the it, it's like, yeah, we want equality, but we only want equality for these people. That's not equality. Right. And I know that, you know, we're looking through a historical lens with current, you know, kind of historical acts of current through a current lens. But, you know, that wasn't uh, an egregious act that was perpetuated on this country that I feel like we still don't atone for right we're not we're not acknowledging it uh in the video of that governor's speech i'm not sure uh who he was maybe a cabinet member. oh the guy on the yes yes. Yes. Uh, so there was a black man who was standing behind him and he was nodding along to the speech until he got to the part about thomas jefferson he stopped and And it was like well (laughs) that's pretty that's pretty much how we all feel but it's like you can you can tell that's how people are looking on the other side of the you know the tv screen Mm -hmm. that's you know because like these people were flawed. These people represent something totally different for a huge amount of uh, uh, American population. You know, they represent oppression and uh, race, continued racism. It's like, it's like the you know the sense of like 
progress like uh, as a nation versus actual institutionalized racism that we're not confronting. Absolutely. Can I ask you two a question? Like, so as a straight white male, I feel like I don't have the uh, authority to talk on certain issues. Mm. And so I'm wondering if, you know, as a woman or as a black man, if there is any uh, value given for the context of when a person lives, like, can we grade someone on a curve at all? So like, for example, you know, during slavery, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have a slave owner who's like, you know, listen, you know, we're living here, you're working on my plantation, but you know, here's the the secret is I'm going to pay you a wage. You can do whatever you want. And then as soon as you're done, I'm going to, I'm going to free you, Mm -hmm. you know, that that person is still quote unquote have slaves. That person still lives in that institution and is still benefiting from you know his privilege. But for the time that he's in, he's extremely progressive. Like, do we grade that guy on a curve, or does he still have the same crimes as somebody who is kind of quote unquote racist today, but doesn't have slaves? You know that sort of thing. I feel like those people have been graded on a curve. Mm-hmm. If you look at how history has portrayed slaveholders and slaveholding and the institution of slavery in this country, you know, even the most vicious and vile of slaveholders have been monumentalized and yeah. uh, conified within our society, especially within, you know, places that were formerly a part of the Confederacy. So, you know, can we have discussions where we explore the nuance of a person that understands, yes, they might have been slaveholders, but they might have also been, you know, somehow compassionate, I'm sure. But there were also people that were, you know, fully within the abolishment movement, did not own slaves Mm. and were white and fought for the liberation of black people. So I would probably give those people more credit, to be quite honest. (laughs) No, that's totally fair. We're going to wrap. We're going to play a little bit of music and then we're going to come back and talk about the rest of the news that's been going on over the past couple of weeks since we've been off. Make sure that you help us get to South by Southwest by voting in our contest. We are in the running to take RFB on the road to South by Southwest 2018 in Austin. You can go online to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash SXSW or South by Southwest. Vote there and also tell your friends to vote too. The voting ends on August 25th. So make sure that you help us out. We really want to go to South by Southwest and tell everybody all the awesome things we're doing at Radio Free Brooklyn and help them start their own. So we'll be right back right here on Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn in just a moment. Thanks for listening. Whew. That wasn't... Uh...
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Michael Jackson. They don't really care about us. I love that song. Yes. <laughs> so there was other things that happened in the past couple of weeks, including the escalation of words between President Trump and the leader of North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Is that the official <sighs> DPR? So. Yes. Um, Kim Jong-un. And, you know, this is very interesting because it was like schoolhouse taunting, it Mm -hmm. felt like. Uh, On Tuesday, President Trump tweeted or talked about, said, North Korea, best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He then reinforced those comments in a press conference. And then on Thursday, North Korea said that it has a plan to fire four ballistic missiles near Guam. And these are missiles that are they have like smaller nuclear cores. So basically he's he's talking about, yeah, I I have these bombs. I could send them. I could hit Guam. The governor of Guam uh, telegraphed support to Trump. Um, But there was also an interesting exchange where President Trump called the governor of Guam and talked about how it could possibly be a great boost to tourism. Mm -hmm. So. That was interesting. I can't wait to go somewhere that I'm pretty sure is going to get nuked yeah. off the map. Because that really, like, I, I'm just so excited. That's a real yeah, selling point. Yeah, I saw point. these beautiful beaches on the, like, catastrophic newsreels. I can't wait. <laughs> okay, it's so great. It's so great. And then, you know, his response was the United States military, or sorry, President Trump's response was the United States military is locked and loaded should North Korea act, quote unquote, unwisely. So... You know, we're all hoping that this is just a war of words. Like, this mm-hmm. is just some, like, you know, post-Cold War era stuff right. that is just like, we we have to show our might, you know, using our words. But I'm curious what, you know, the one question is, like, what do you think of this escalation of words? Do you think that Trump should be participating in this war of words or should he just, you know, kind of let North Korea do their thing? I mean, absolutely not. I'm uh, Some smarter people than me have talked about this where... You know, the entire foundation of uh, Kim Jong-un's power is in getting his citizens to believe that everything that's wrong with them and their lives, the reason why they are starving, is mm-hmm. because of America and because of the West. Mm-hmm. And so when the president of the United States is so blatantly threatening, it justifies every dollar that he spends on making missiles, and it, and it kind of quells any oppression that he could happen in North Korea where, you know, his citizens would be like, well, I guess he's right. I guess he does have to be, you know, taking rice out of my family's uh, mouth. God, that was offensive. I should have picked a different kind of food. Oh, man, that is a foot and mouth. Oh, boy. We'll All just right. roll on from that. <laughs> but I think I know what you understand. You're saying I'm not, you know, he, yeah. it, it justifies the, you know, the atrocities that are enacted Back. upon the North Korean people. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of show of force. Violet, I'm curious from your perspective, do you think that there's something is a better way to handle this? Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> yes. I don't think we should be directly provoking Kim Jong-un or talking about, mili- you know, military readying, readying ourselves militarily. Now the bombs can reach California, I hear. That's yeah. very interesting. But, I mean, it, of course it's worth saying that, like, all all American, all U.S. presidents' efforts to de-escalate for the past years, since the 50s, since the, you know, the Korean War, have pretty much failed. Yeah. You know, the country has steadily been, uh, you know, I- increasing its military uh, abilities. So, like, the bombs have been getting developed. It's not like... 
uh, all of our diplomatic efforts up to this point have been so useful. Exactly. But at the same time, you've got like, uh, you've got an angry nation ready to attack and you don't want, you don't want to provoke it. And you know, you think about like in the grand scheme of like who the players are in the world, like North Korea is just like that dude on the like outskirts that like nobody really messes with because they're always ranting about things. And like the idea that we're going to pick that guy and we're going to have this war of words with, it just doesn't seem it doesn't seem logical. It doesn't seem in the best interest of the United States. And I wonder what do we have to gain about this? Or what does the Trump administration have to gain? There's no there's no strategy there. He's just he's just a big idiot who wants to throw his weight around and he found an opportunity to do that. You know, it's not smart. It's not mm-hmm. like there's there's no three dimensional chess there. It's a dude who feels insecure and wants to feel powerful and so he shoots off his big fucking mouth. Like mm-hmm. he's 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 a moron. Right. And it's it's just his cred as a strong man. You know, he's a yeah. strong man. This is what strong men do. Yeah, it's like it's it's very much, you know, I we've been talking about my dick is bigger arguments like throughout this whole campaign slash presidency. And it's just it seems like another one of them. It's like we have to show this whatever might to whoever is going to listen, because nobody really I, I don't see any tangible benefits to spouting off and even threatening the idea of war on either side. And then the idea that we have so many other things that we could be focusing on mm-hmm. that this just seems like, you know, that it's one of those distractions that, you know, we're talking about. I think it also takes away from our credibility on the international community. Like, like we're not going to be able to solve this problem by just going, by just butting heads with North Korea. Like exactly. we need to be engaging China and Japan and uh, we have to be figuring out how to get the rest of the world to put enough pressure onto North Korea that they start acting like not a crazy place. And so when we then start, you know, uh, wagging our fists around and shutting our mouths off, like it just takes away from our credibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, we're obviously going to be watching this. We don't, we, we're hoping for the best, I think is the only <laughs> thing that you can say because it's so like, no, none of us, you know, I, I know there, there are people that are alive now that have seen the effects of nuclear war, whether it's Hiroshima or, or, you know, and see the, just the effects of like nuclear fallout with, you know, the various busts and breaks that have happened around the world. And it's not something that I feel like should ever be used, you know, my opinion, but it's just the fact that this is even in the discussion. It's just, it's an interesting part of this administration and it's so boldly in the discussion so turning to the possible collusion with russia that's currently under investigation the russian government and the trump campaign obviously we've been covering this possible collusion we don't exactly know what happened but we do know that there were conversations that were had among people from both of those camps and we learned this week that fbi officials raided the home of former trump campaign chair paul manafort um, at the end of July, and more and more people are being interviewed within the Trump camp by the special counsel. So, you know, we, we've been asking the question, do you think there's going to come charges from this? I, I think that there might come some charges from this at this point, but I'm wondering if you have any idea who's going to take the fall, who is going to be held accountable. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I just from everything that I have heard about this and from everything that has been disclosed and it just, it really seems like everybody's going to jail. And I really, really, I I, I don't know. I'm blinded by how much I want that to actually think about the realistic ramifications of that, 
You know, in reality, you know, he's probably just going to be impeached. I don't think mm. he's probably going to go to jail. I really want him to, you know. But the but, thing that, you know, there's no, the official charge, we talk about collusion because that's the kind of the buzzword, but the, there's no official charge. There are several charges that could be applied, whether it's, you know, obstruction of justice and the idea of not testifying truthfully or perjury. Um, there's also the idea that there was, you know, illegal contact between someone of a foreign government you know, some of those more like and, espionage uh, related charges and payment because and pay- information of money. Yeah. yeah that that as counts well. as a payment. So I think that, you know, as these, as it comes out, you know, it will be really interesting to see what people say, like Reince Priebus, you know, people that are really intimately involved um, in this campaign to see what information they have. It's, it's a really, it's a big information discovery piece. Um, I, I don't know that, I, but I don't know that, you know, at the end there will be charges. I don't know if it'll end like Nixon did. I don't know if it'll go there. Well, the thing that gives me hope is that this administration has pissed off so many people, like even people who are still currently working under the Trump administration. He he can't help but annoy and stab in the back everybody that it works for. So you've got people like Michael Flynn. You've got people like Jeff Sessions. You've got people like uh, Reince Priebus who thought they were protected because they paid lip service mm-hmm. to the president and then he threw them all under the bus. No one is safe. And no yeah, and so now none of them have any incentive to to watch his back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's one of the things that gives me hope where I'm like, yeah, if every one of these people got together and was like, yeah, he was the kingpin, he was the one that org- orchestrated this, like he could go to prison for a long time. And, yeah. and the, I would dance in the streets well, and I think we don't, you know, that type of if if they did, can't, you know, all come together and essentially, you know, drop the ball or drop the the book on him and tell everything, you know, that happened, whether whatever that may be, you know, that that would be interesting, and mm-hmm. I feel like that would show that there really is no allegiance, you know, because I feel like there have still been people that are like, yeah, you know, he did us dirty, but we're still kind of in his corner. So mm-hmm. if we see that much defection. Then, then I think that would be interesting. Do you think there's real loyalty there, or is it just that he has things on them? Well, it's also, political loyalty, you know? whatever that is. Yeah. You know, is that real loyalty or not? I don't know. No, I think it's mob loyalty. Yeah. Where you know, I know you got a body. You know, I got a body. Yeah, and and I, so, I feel like that. But is does in the in the eyes of how it manifests, is there any difference, really? Yeah, I suppose. Well, yeah, I don't know. So <laughs> let's switch to New York City. Oh, did, before we go, did you have any thoughts on that? Uh, any other thoughts? Oh, my only thought is uh, if if they do break from loyalty, that could be that could be the one instance where I see you know Trump's core supporters also breaking if they see everyone leaving him. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and I, well, I think too the the interesting thing about the supporters though is that they just when you the if you look at how you would perceive them to act, they're going to do the opposite. Like it's a very it's hard to kind of pinpoint what they will align to and what they won't. And there are so many different factions. Um, it, it's hard to determine. So that, that, that will be interesting as well, how they react to as more of this news coming out. Mm-hmm. Will they even believe it? Will they will okay. consider it fake news? It's fake news. <laughs> fake news. So <laughs> let's go to New York City, where we're still in the mayoral race, getting heated up. And one another Democrat has qualified to debate with Mayor Bill de Blasio, Sal Albanese. And so I'm wondering, this is the first person that has qualified. So there will be a Democratic primary debate um, the primary is going to be held in September. We've been talking about whether de Blasio has earned a reelection. Um, I think the question is now, does Sal Albanese have a chance? Um, you know, he's a much, I feel he's much more of a left type of person than, 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 de, Blasio than de Blasio is. is. But I'm curious to know what you think. 
I mean, uh, unfortunately, I feel like the mayoral race has gone completely into the radar because I've been so focused on yeah. national issues. Um, I didn't even know that, that he had a primary challenger yet. Um, I, the thing I think about Delazio is, you know, it, it, he just feels like a very non-grandstandy kind of a mayor. Like yeah. he, he does his work. You know, he's he's been working really hard on universal pre-K. Which is not what we're used to yeah. in New York City. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, you know, the thing with the police, like, you know, I, I think that he got a really bad rap for standing up to the, the, the NYPD and, and basically like not even doing anything bad to them, just like saying to them what they didn't want to hear. And then they mm -hmm. all turned their backs on him and were like, you're fucking the police mayor, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I feel like he gets a lot of bad rap that way. Yeah. And, you know, he, you know, the, 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 the one percenters have been like, you know, uh, throwing a lot of uh, throwing a lot of mud on him for the the snowplow thing. You guys remember the yeah. snowplow debacle where he tried to get the the streets in the poorer neighborhoods plowed before the rich neighborhoods. I um, feel like a lot of the things that there are some things that he gets criticized about that are kind of petty. Yeah, like there's the thing about him taking like a car to go to the gym or mm. something like that. There are things that I feel like yeah, it's just kind of petty. But then I feel like there are also because there there are people that look at the way that he interacted with police and said he wasn't as forceful as he could have been on the police. Oh, 100 percent. And so you know, I think that there's kind of both sides of that argument. The idea of that those those police unions and their ability to kind of spin the public perception yeah. um, is really interesting and it does play a big part in how people perceive the mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think, Violet? Uh, I think I need to educate myself <laughs> a lot more on Sal yeah. and what, what the challenger is. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's that underdog thing, like for the past, however many weeks we've been talking about the, uh, the reelection, it's been, uh, de Blasio's the incumbent. We think, de Blasio will win, let's not pay that much attention to his uh, contenders. And now we've got this guy who finally raised enough money to qualify to debate him as a primary member. And if we know anything from our recent experience, we should know not to immediately discount him. Mm -hmm. 100%. Very true. Yeah, we should never discount anyone because then they could get elected. The one thing that always that always makes me want to support de Blasio is this fight that he's got with Cuomo over the education system. Do you guys know about this? No, I haven't heard of the education one. I know there's the one over the MTA. But. Yeah. So um, I have a friend who works in education. He was telling me all about this, how the um, mayor has taken away control of education system and sort of like given it to the educators and basically said, like, you know, you guys let us know what you need, you know, blah, blah, mm. blah. And Cuomo, because he does not like de Blasio, keeps on making the mayor go up to Albany and re-argue for this system. And all the educators are in favor of it. And they're like, no, this is great. And we actually kind of hate Cuomo for forcing de Blasio to do this. Like, why don't you just give it to him for four years and said, mm -hmm. you got to keep us on a leash like this, you know? And, you know, I know that Cuomo, he's got some good things. He's got some bad things about him. But when I hear this sort of thing, it makes me feel like de Blasio is fighting the good fight and that I should be I should be supporting him, you know. But again, I'm not going to write off his primary challenger right away. You know, I like to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, you know, listen to them in the debate, see if there's any good ideas there, and then I'll judge based on that. Absolutely. I definitely think it's been a lot less, kind of to what you were talking about earlier, there's been a lot less visibility to this race, maybe oh, because of what's been going on nationally, maybe because it's just not as contentious, contentious as races prior. We're going to play a little bit of music and then we'll be right back to talk to you more about your book, uh, The Kellyanne Conway Technique, right, right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Make sure to check out all the shows we have here on Radio Free Brooklyn. You can do that by visiting us at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. You can also donate by clicking on the big green pledge button. Help keep us on the air. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
Listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome back. So, our fellow RFB co-host Jared Bernstein has also written a book. That's right. It is called The Kellyanne Conway Technique, and it looks at the White House advisor Kellyanne Conway through a new lens, exploring her her rise. I brought you guys a copy to, to look at. Spin the world. You so, can see it in the flesh. Right. Yes. Yeah, so tell me, I'm actually interested. Rose, I'm gonna have to take that because I'm I'm really interested <laughs> to read it, and I'm curious. You know, we've all seen Kellyanne Conway. We've talked about her on this show. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to kind of write a book from that lens? Well, this was um, a a an agreement that I made with a publishing company. They were looking for someone to make fun of to to write a book making fun of Kellyanne Conway, mm -hmm. and I just I happened to know somebody at the publishing company, and so I got recommended to write it. Um, but they gave me very little direction, and so it was basically me you know, watching a bunch of her interviews, which was like the, the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then figuring out exactly how she does what she does, like what are the tools in her in her tool belt, and then trying to write about them in a way that seemed like it was like a fake instructional manual, mm -hmm. but also was making fun of her and basically all of conservatives at the same time. So what were some of the things that stuck out to you most when you're going through all that footage of Kellyanne? Well, the big thing that she does is talk a lot. And what I recognized in watching her in interviews is that the longer that she has an answer, uh, that accomplishes a lot of good things for her because mm -hmm. number one, it eats up a lot of the interview. So if it's a five minute interview and she talks for three minutes of that, that only leaves two minutes to ask follow up questions or challenge her on the things that she's saying or, you know, whatever it is that you want to call her on. And also she's able to say in those three minutes, eight different things that you're going to want to comment on, mm -hmm. you know? And so if, 
you know, you ask me a question and I go off on a rant that mentions, you know, the the fact that Obama wasn't born in this country or 9-11 and also that 9-11 was an inside job and also that, you know, Donald Trump brought, you know, 80 million jobs back to this country in his first month, you know, and all of a sudden you, you're faced like with only 30 seconds to respond to that. You're going to have to pick one of those. Like it's it's really difficult to to pin down exactly what you're going to talk to her about if she just continues talking and bringing up crazy things. Does that make sense? No, that totally makes sense. And I think for most people, it, it was just so shocking to see her on the air kind of spinning all of these things. Mm. What are people going to get that they might not have gotten from watching it from your book? Um, I think that a lot of the things that she does, if you if you really study it, if you really look at all the different interviews that she does, you really see the repetition of the different techniques and it makes it a little bit more obvious what, what she's doing like I have um, my editor was reading the book and telling me that even though she had seen Kellyanne Conway in a bunch of interviews it still wasn't obvious to her exactly what the mechanisms were until she read the book until she was like oh that makes more sense and now it's a lot easier to sort of like see those things happening in real time once it's sort of like laid out for you absolutely i Curious. So this book is coming out in a couple um, the weeks. 22nd, yeah. August 22nd. And where can people pick it up? It is available for pre-order now everywhere that you will buy a book, but it is going to be at various Barnes and Nobles booksellers. It is possible it will be at Urban Outfitters as well. Uh, and it's and like an actual physical book. Like I'm looking at a physical book, book like, yeah. which is so rare right now. throwback. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bring it, bring paperback back. I yeah, love it. It's going to be an ebook too. You can read it on your phones, whatever your kids want to do, man. Nice. But it is, you know, not to not to suck my own dick here. I think it's a super funny book, and it's really not love that phrase, it's not you? dry at all. Uh, Causes so much mental. Um, <laughs> yes, well, it's good to hear. I'm excited to read it. Make sure you guys check it out. You can find it everywhere where books are sold. I'm imagining, and I think you can also get it on Amazon. You can get the ebook version. And before we go, I want to hear about the show that you have here on Radio Free Brooklyn, Famous Dead People. Oh yeah, um, uh, the show is called uh, Famous Dead People. It is a it is every Monday at three p.m. We also podcast as well, so if you guys want to check out old episodes, you can do that. It is basically me sitting down with comedians who are pretending to be almost every notable person that you can think of from history, from you know Thomas Jefferson, you know great great American, great parachute Thomas <laughs> Jefferson. <laughs> Completely unblemished record, Thomas Jefferson. Oh, yeah. I, I would totally <laughs> want to listen to that. You know, we also talked to Marlon Brando, Louis Pasteur, and I like to try to get people who are completely disparate together. So I'll have like uh, Julius Caesar in a conversation with Sigmund Freud, and I'll have, you know, Anne Frank hanging out with John F. Kennedy, you know, just like trying to get people from as many disparate time periods and and parts of the world together. And, you know, it's oh, it's it's like a tiny bit informative, like we do... Um, you know, use the actual history to inform these interviews. Uh, but it's really silly and it's just, you know, it's good, good, clean fun. All right. We'll make sure to check that out. When can they hear it again? Uh, that's Famous Dead People every Monday at 3 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. But you can also listen to old episodes on uh, iTunes and stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jared, for joining thank us. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you for being yes. here, Violet. Is also, thank you all for listening to Objections to the Rule. We will be back again next week at 1 p.m. for all of the analysis that you're not hearing anywhere else. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to vote to put RFB in South by Southwest. You can do that 
at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash SXSW or South by Southwest. We have What is Love coming up next with Sasha Sugar. So stay tuned right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Bye, everyone. <laughs> 